I am Richard Paulsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 13th of August. That's before we delve into some of the history of the city where today's show is taking place. A city which used to be known as Old Riki, a city with seven hills and a ridiculously large arts festival. Yes, it's Edinburgh! So we're performing our second show here in the Edinburgh Festival Fringe and are once again at the Beehive Inn in the Grassmarket, the historic street which we learnt so much about in our previous show. Our panel today features one local act and three acts from further afield who've come to the Edinburgh Fringe to perform guest spots and their own solo shows. So, let me introduce them to you as we hold our noses, because it is old Ricky. Let me introduce Andrew White. <laughs> David Crutchhouse. <laughs> Fedor Ikalar. <laughs> and Charmian Hughes. <laughs> so, without further ado, our first guest is Andrew White. Now, Andrew is still a teenager, so hasn't lived through a lot of history, but he got an OK grade in his history A-level, and considers himself to be an expert in Wikipedia rabbit holes. Now, he was the 2017-18 Southwest Region Debating Champion. So congratulations there. And as a stand-up, Andrew has performed at pubs, clubs and corporate functions all over the UK, as well as making appearances in Berlin and in Toronto. His show at the Edinburgh Fringe is called Retirement Tour, which is on at just the Tonics Mash House venue every day. Now, this would be confusing enough, if it wasn't for a typo in the printed Fringe programme, which describes him as being nine, <laughs> <laughs> rather than 19 years old. So over to you, Andrew. Thank you. Yes, if you do find a programme, skip to Andrew White Retirement Tour, and it says uh, uh, nine-year-old Andrew White. Do check that out. They've dropped a line and dropped the one. Uh, I am genuinely 19, uh, although I can see some confusion, because, uh, of course, up here, just finished the A-levels, down here... Just paid off the mortgage. I'm very aware. Uh, so, so the uh, we've been asked to, to do a five-minute set on something that's happened on this day in history, uh, and I've chosen the uh, the 13th of August, 1969, uh, which when they had a ticker tape parade uh, for the moon landing. Uh, now, I'll be 100% honest with you. Uh, I wrote most of this half an hour ago in Princess Street clothing. Uh, so, uh, do bear with me. Uh, there's a very awful pun at the very end as well. If you can stick it out that long. Uh, since I'm, I'm quite fascinated with, with the moon landing and um, in the commemoration of all the astronauts. Obviously, you all remember Neil Armstrong, uh, Buzz Aldrin, and the other guy who was <laughs> Michael Collins. It was uh, a lot of people do forget Michael Collins, and that, I do put that down to his name. Uh, he sounds less like an astronaut and more like a, uh, a clothing chain for middle-aged fathers who enjoy DIY. <laughs> <laughs> Need a work shirt for painting that shed? Head down down to Michael Collins. <laughs> uh, uh, actually, I'm surprised, but Buzz Aldrin, he is, he's quite clever actually, because his real name was Edwin, uh, and there's no place for Edwin in history, uh, so he did change his name to Buzz, uh, which I think is very wise. Uh, he kind of follows this um, American tradition of uh, giving yourself an exciting, interesting name. Uh, so a lot of Americans, they like to, to name their children after qualities they would like them to have. Uh, this is chastity and liberty and crap loads of money. <laughs> Very traditional uh, American names. Uh, now, I, um, I'm quite interested in the parade particularly because it's a ticker tape parade. I wasn't 100% sure what that was uh, for, for telegraph communications and that. 
which of course is obsolete nowadays, so I assume uh, the modern equivalent would be throwing iPads at celebrities in cars. Uh, <laughs> which sounds stupid, but that's actually Netflix's next reality TV commission, so there you go, keep an eye out for it. Uh, no, apparently modern day it's just confetti, uh, but confetti parade just sounds boring. So there we go, still called a ticker tape parade despite that. Um, and yeah, they throw off ticker tape from high-rise office buildings. Uh, and again, the modern equivalent really wouldn't really work with the economy. Just be driving past big high-rise buildings that say to let on it, really. So not really the same effect. Um, yeah, so JFK obviously in 1961 said, uh, we'll reach the moon and do the space race. Um, unfortunately, he wasn't there for the ticker tape parade because something happened, I don't know. Um, <laughs> around him. Uh, and so uh, the, he said the parade was hosted by Richard Nixon. Uh, which again, I've not really read around him, but I believe it's the thing he's most famous for. The actual first ticker tape parade was in 1886, and it was a complete spontaneous accident. Um, people, they were, for the Statue of Liberty, when they were first commemorating it, uh, they were taking it down Broadway, and spontaneously people just started throwing ticker tape. Uh, out their window, uh, which I like to believe is just one man who was doing a clear out and accidentally started a phenomenon. <laughs> oh, oh crap, everyone's doing it now. That sort of thing. Um, and I thought there's no better um, you know, a subject to cover for the fringe than people just throwing paper on the ground. I think it's really uh, <laughs> a great analogy, to be honest. Uh, and apparently the volume of paper was so dense that the, uh, the astronauts in the cars literally couldn't see. Uh, which again, uh, if you change uh, astronauts for me uh, and paper for theatre students, a uh, similar, similar kind of situation, so dense you can't see through them. Um, uh, I love a parade as well, I'm a big fan of parades, uh, partly because I am gay, uh, tell surprise. Room full of people not being surprised. okay. <laughs> no, I, I, I love a good parade and... Um, this particularly uh, took interest to me. But then actually I read more into it and it wasn't even the, the first parade that year. They had a parade um, earlier in the year for the Apollo 8 mission, which just went round the moon. A throw a parade for bloody anything. <laughs> 1960, they held a parade for a, a, a woman's ice skater who won the gold Olympics. I mean, she just skated on ice. These guys walked on the moon. They were given the same honor. It just doesn't seem uh, proportionate, really. Um, but yeah, they were given the key to the city uh, and told to leave it through the letterbox when they're done with it. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it just, I think uh, the moon landing, especially this um, parade, kind of seems uh, indicative of the American dream. Uh, which everyone goes on about. No one talks about the American dream. The American dream. Uh, but no one talks about the British dream. <laughs> Which is, of course, to accumulate enough junk to do a boot sale. <laughs> That's all we want. Uh, and here, as promised, is the awful uh, pun that I will end on. Because uh, apparently we are close to stepping on the moon. In fact, it could be as soon as Pancake Day 2020. That's one small crap for man. Uh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. So I'm going to do a little segue piece in between the acts, and I've picked out three famous Scottish people associated with this date in history. So on 13th of August 1867, Sir William Craigie was born in Dundee. He was the son of a jobbing gardener, but came to be regarded as the most eminent lexicographer of his day, i.e. he excelled at the theory and practice of compiling dictionaries. He graduated with honours in classics and philosophy from St Andrews University, studied Scandinavian languages in Copenhagen, became fluent in Icelandic and an expert in the field of Icelandic rhyming epic poems, or rimur. He was appointed lecturer in the Scandinavian languages at Oxford and became a professor of Anglo-Saxon. 
where one of the students he tutored was called J.R.R. R. Talking. There we go. So from 1901 to 33, he was joint editor of the New English Dictionary in Oxford and worked a seven and a half hour day every day on the letters N, Q, R, U and V, as well as S, I to S, Q and W, O to W, Y. And that amounted to nearly one fifth of the whole work and about a third of the supplement. He received a knighthood when the dictionary was completed. The only reason I guess he didn't become a black belt at Scrabble was the game was only invented in 1938. He was also professor of English at the University of Chicago and edited a dictionary of American English, spending most of his time later in life on a dictionary of the older Scottish tongue, which he carried on to the letter I uh, in 1955 at the age of 87, before handing it over to his successor, A.J. Aitken. I can only imagine that conversation about the half-finished dictionary being handed over. Aitken saying, do you want me to take this on? Craigie going, hi, how far did you get? Hi, <laughs> but how far did you, no. <laughs> uh, without further ado, on to our second guest, David Cruikshanks. Now, David lives in Strathmagloe, which is in the kingdom of Fife. Uh, he's a joke and sketch writer for Radio Scotland and is passionate about history, something he demonstrated only too well when he was a guest in our show in Glasgow back in March. Over to you, David, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm not going to stand up because I've just walked up those flights of stairs and I'm absolutely bloody knackered. Um, so, um, thanks Richard. It's good to be back on It Just So Happened, uh, or in my case, uh, thanks to ScotRail, it nearly never bloody happened. Um, so I'd like to take my uh, few minutes to talk about one of my heroes, um, the medical pioneer and tireless campaigner for women's rights, Dr. Elsie Ingalls. Uh, a wee caveat to that, uh, this is very badly researched and a shocking homily to a very famous woman. Um, so Dr. Elsie Ingalls was born on this day in 1864, give or, give or take a few days, uh, well, you've got to remember, around that time, 1864, India, computers were a bit like the automatic checkout till at Asda, you know? The ones that need three staff that surround you while you bag your copy of the Daily Mail, carefully sandwiched between some hardcore porn. <laughs> now, Elsie grew up in the foothills of the Himalayas. That's the Himalayas in India, not the ones in St Andrews. Looks like there might be a bit of a St Andrews crowd on there. Um, so Elsie managed to become a pioneer, a medical pioneer, a suffragist, a war hero, which is incredible in the 19th century. But what's even more amazing is she did all that, as well as being the yummy mummy on Little House in the Prairie. Although we didn't know each other, I developed a very lively interest in Elsie and her work. And as I grew up in the 60s, many of my friends had posters of footballers and pop stars adorned on the wall, but I wasn't interested in that. My icons were people who'd have a much greater impact on society than posers running around in football, kicking a ball or warbling into a microphone. In fact, many of my heroes would become legends in their chosen field. And that's why I put Elsie's smiling picture alongside my posters of Sir Jimmy Savile, Rolf Harris, and Prince Andrew. <laughs> now, Elsie's parents were quite progressive uh, in the 19th century, growing up in India. 
particularly her father, who saw the education of women as equally important as the education of men to them. He was also happy to allow Elsie to explore the area around her and to experiment with her environment. So Elsie studied and became proficient in recognising conditions such as smallpox, cholera, malaria, and that one you get when you've had lots of unprotected sex with lots of men. Pregnant. <laughs> it was seeing this horrendous conditions that women in India endured during pregnancy that fired her soul and made her seriously consider a career as a bus driver. But her father was powerful and very influential. In fact, he was so powerful he used to champion native economic development, which kind of means he bribed a lot of other people so that he could make the natives work their asses off while they sat around watching cricket on Sky Sports. So as well as insisting that Elsie got a good education to prepare her for a career in medicine, he shunned the usual 19th century pastimes of shooting tigers and getting very skinny men to fan them whilst drinking twice their weight in tea. In fact, Elsie's father preferred to watch the tigers eat the skinny men while they drank Red Bull. <laughs> of course, the Ingalls family loved India so much that at the earliest opportunity, they all buggered off to Europe. So after studying in London, Paris and a wee stint in Methyl, Elsie began working with Dr. Sophie Jex Blake, who sounds suspiciously like she might be related to William Lee Small. Together they began a dazzling doctoring double act, a bit like the Morecambe and Wise of midwifery. However, Jex Blake's uncompromising ways and dodgy name didn't suit Elsie and they split. Personally, I think it was because Sophie fancied herself as a funny obstetrician and got more laughs and as she cut women open without anaesthetic, while Elsie was the one who got slapped in the face by the women who screamed that they cut their men's balls off when they got home. <laughs> Elsie was keen to become a solo act, and after stints of some of Glasgow's most hostile theatres, such as the Western General, the Victoria Infirmary, and a spot of Panto at the King's, she moved to Edinburgh. And it was there that she set up her women's hospice, a dedicated facility in the Royal Mile, just a stone's throw from here. Well, if you call a stone throw half a mile up the hill, past two roundabouts, take two left turns and pass three sets of it. But just as Elsie got her one freak on on the First World War, the First World War started. And she offered her services to the War Office as a nurse, but was immediately told to go home and be still. By someone who sounded suspiciously like they were related to William Lee Small. And by William Rees-Mogg, I mean any privileged arsehole that's never done a hand's tongue in their puff. <laughs> Around this time, her interest in women's rights reached their zenith, and she became a suffragist. People often ask what a suffragist is. The answer is pragmatism. A suffragette will throw herself under a bus to highlight inequalities. A suffragist will throw someone else under the bus. <laughs> Shunned by the greatest British establishment we all know and love, Elsie was approached by the Serbian royal family and for over a year she provided field hospital facilities during some of the worst fighting in the Great War. Sadly, at the height of her powers in 1916, Dr Elsie Ingalls became ill and had to return from the front back to England. 
She travelled by train to Newcastle, and despite rumours of a horrible, violent death involving a British rail cheese and ham toastie, she succumbed to cancer on the 26th of November 1917. Although there is a plaque somewhere in Edinburgh to commemorate Dr Elsie Ingalls, there is no statue to highlight her amazing achievements in the world of medicine and women's rights. As sadly, Elsie wasn't a sky terrier and didn't hang about graveyards pissing on dead people whilst flagging everybody's lunch. <laughs> Thank you very much. David Crookshanks. Thank you. So it's the 13th of August 1888 when John Logie Baird was born in Helensborough. A famous inventor, he was experimenting even as a child as he fiddled with the local telephone exchange to connect his bedroom to those of his friends across the street. In his 20s, Baird tried to create diamonds. He did this by heating graphite, which only resulted in shorting out Glasgow's electricity supply. The First World War interrupted his BSc course at the University of Glasgow and he never returned to graduate, and he couldn't serve in the war due to ill health. And that also forced him to move away from Glasgow to Hastings on the south coast of England. Now he first worked on inventing and marketing a water-absorbent sock called the Baird Undersock, before then concentrating on creating a television, which I think was probably a good move. Uh, so from one foot in the sock to one foot in the grave. Um, uh, or socks in the city, even so. Um, he built the world's first working television set using items which included an old hat box and a pair of scissors, some darning needles, a few bicycle light lenses, a used tea chest, sealing wax and glue. And this was before Blue Peter. By 1924 he was successfully transmitting a flickering image of few feet, but in the process he also gave himself a 1000 volt electric shock. He survived, only with a burnt hand, but his landlord asked him to leave his lodgings. On the 2nd of October 1925, he transmitted that first television picture with a grayscale image in his laboratory. Baird visited the Daily Express newspaper to try and promote his invention. The news editor was quoted by one of his staff as saying, for God's sake, go down to reception, get rid of that lunatic who's down there. He says he's got a machine for seeing by wireless. Watch him, he may have a razor on him. It's the 26th of January 1926 when John Logie Baird gave the world's first demonstration of true television in London in front of scientists and a reporter, this time from the Times. It was the first demonstration of a system that could broadcast live moving images. The following year, Baird transmitted television signal over 438 miles of telephone line between London and Glasgow. Later that year, he set up a television company and that achieved the first transatlantic television transmission between London and New York. All that was all very successful, but he also developed a system of recording television to disc, which he called phonovision. The only problem was you couldn't play back the recordings, which uh, seems to be a slight oversight. On to our third guest. This is Fedor Ikelar. Hope I've pronounced your name yep. correctly. Fedor was born and raised in the Netherlands, but feeling out of place, left there to live in Nepal where he tells me he feels even more out of place. Um, <laughs> there he's surrounded by spiritual Nepalese, occasional opium dealers, forgotten hippies, and millennials trying to find themselves, but remains captivated by the madness of it all. Stand-up comedy started as a way of successfully blowing off steam, but he's now one of the biggest comedians in Nepal. 
Um, not too difficult to be so big in Nepal when you're a tall Dutch person. So over to you, Fedor. Thank you. Thank you. Now that you mentioned it like that, I'm starting to realize that Nepal is a lot like Glasgow. Um, that's a, but that's a different thing. Um, yeah, before I start, uh, it's good to know that I also have a master's degree in anthropology, uh, which is of no significance to this bit, or is it ever of any significance? Uh, but I thought at least by mentioning it, it would fill the first 30 seconds, and then those four years of university were in a complete waste of time. Uh, that being said, in 2015, during the electoral campaign, Donald Trump first mentioned his wall. Um, I don't do voice imitations, so just... Imagine the voice of a, a big Oompa Loompa. <laughs> uh, he said, uh, I will build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me, and I'll build them very inexpensively. I was surprised that he used inexpensively. That's how low I think of Trump. Uh, sort of thought he would go for cheap. Anyway, uh, I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and it will make, I will make Mexico pay for that wall, mark my words. Uh, so, yeah, that's what I did. I marked his words. And that's about all that ever happened to that wall. <laughs> also, he, did, he didn't say that on the 13th of August, nor did anything regarding the wall ever, that wall ever happened on the 13th of August. So, basically, it's irrelevant for this. Uh, but it just so happened that on the 13th of August, 1961, uh, the Berlin Wall did actually get built. Overnight, the Soviet-controlled east side of Berlin closed 165 kilometers of borders. Of border, uh, I don't know how much that is in your snobby imperial system, but I'm gonna guess uh, around five stone. <laughs> uh, so when it comes to wall building, communism one, orange capitalist zero. Uh, but because they built the wall rather quickly, they had to cut some corners here and there, literally, uh, which left. Uh, part of East Berlin in West Berlin, uh, including a house, uh, the house of uh, Bernhard Sauer. Uh, the young Bernhard, Bernhard uh, unfortunately, was a, a real comrade, so he was very frustrated about being left in the Americanized capitalist west side of Berlin. Uh, but he managed to maintain a communist lifestyle uh, and was actually the first to implement what is now known as the Chinese communist dependence model. Uh, by making cheap crap and selling it to capitalists. <laughs> In his case, uh, potato salad. <laughs> uh, while always keeping the communist ideology alive and distributing all the income he made by this uh, among himself. <laughs> oh, and his dog, his dog Karl Marx, of course. <laughs> uh, this was all until 1989 when the wall fell. Uh, we all remember the historical images, of course, of the Night King flying the Ice Dragon and destroying the wall uh, and the borders being overrun by Germans, uh, undead Germans wearing hideous 80 leather jackets and mullets uh, marching towards Winterfell. Uh, oh. Reading this, I have to note, if you Google uh, the fall of the wall, the first thing that pops up is Game of Thrones, uh, not the East German wall. Might have uh, been more careful with my 15-minute research. Um, uh, and now you might also remember that uh, David Hasselhoff uh, gave a concert at the wall when it fell. Um, at the lack of his better words, uh, he performed his hit, um, Looking for Freedom. 
Uh, a less known fact is that being confronted with David Hasselhoff, most of the East Berliners voluntarily returned to East Berlin, <laughs> joined by a lot of West Berliners. Uh, they desperately tried to reconstruct the wall. Um, unfortunately, the Soviet cement industry had already collapsed. So reunification was inevitable. Uh, and Berlin reunified drastically changed in what is now basically uh, STD with a postal address. Uh, this also sparked new debates uh, over the meaning of the famous Kennedy speech in which he denounced the wall and said the famous words Ich bin ein Berliner uh, interpreted originally as I am a Berliner but uh, was later argue, argued by a New York newspaper that this was actually grammatically incorrect and what he actually said was I am a jelly donut <laughs> Bernhard Sauer is now 77 years old and still alive um, he has uh, left his house in Berlin and moved to the US, where he's still fighting capitalism, as well as walls. He took on his, uh, the anglophone version of his name, uh, so he's now known as Bernie Saunders. <laughs> um, closing with that, I feel uh, it's necessary, especially since this is also a podcast, to add a little disclaimer uh, in case Americans Google uh, is Bernie Saunders a communist and find this. Uh, I want to emphasize that this is all 100% uh, true, based on facts, uh, so please share this in your Republican social media groups. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Fredo. So a third of my Scottish people associated with this date. In 1907, Scottish architect Sir Basil Spence was born. He was actually born in India, but was educated and spent most of his adult life working in Edinburgh studying at George Watson's College and the Edinburgh College of Art. He was an assistant in the London office of the English architect Sir Edwin Lutjens, then in 1939 was commissioned as a second lieutenant into the Camouflage Training and Development Centre of the British Army and took place in the D-Day landings in 1944. He's most famously known for Coventry's Anglican Cathedral. There was a competition to rebuild that after German bombing. In 1950, the competition was launched and his design was chosen out of 200 entries. Uh, he also made contributions in Scotland, so his home t city of Edinburgh includes the modernist buildings known as Browns Close, which is now opposite what is now the Scottish Parliament building, also the Edinburgh University Library building just up the road, and also Morton Hall Crematorium. His contributions to Glasgow included Abbotsinch Airport, which has since become Glasgow Airport, and also the Hutchison Town Sea Tower Blocks, two brutalist 20-storey blocks containing 400 homes. Now, it was acclaimed by architects and modernists, and although initially loved by residents, became riddled with damp and infestations, and in the end, the flats were demolished in 1993. He also created the concept design for the Beehive. Now, we're meeting in a venue called the Beehive, but this venue that he designed is actually the executive wing of New Zealand's Parliament buildings in Wellington. And it looks like a skep, which is basically a kind of basket that's used as a beehive. Although the building's ten storeys high, it actually also has four floors below the ground as well. And it's featured on the New Zealand $20 note. Spence was awarded an OBE in 48 and a knighthood in 1960 for his work in Coventry. But on to our fourth guest, which is uh, Charmian Hughes. Uh, Charmian studied clowning, but as a stand-up comedian of more than two decades standing, has written and performed eight different solo shows and performs just about everywhere, from the Comedy Store to Glastonbury Festival, from prisons to the Houses of Parliament. And 
her current show is at the Edinburgh Fringe called Charmin Hughes Whatnot. Over to you, thank you. Right. Oh, I'll stand with some shorts. Yes, why not? Uh, why not? Well, I, I just have to say, I, I actually went to the Beehive. Oh. Yes, this year when I, I was in it. New Zealand. Oh, yes, right. And it's a very yeah. impressive building. Love New Zealand, that's why I've got kiwis on my dress because <laughs> they're the, the happiest bird. They mate for life, but they have separate bedrooms. <laughs> yeah. um, now, I'm going back in time quite a lot because I have to be careful at my age. By most other people's history, is actually kind of my life. Um, like my own mother was born in 1918, which is the end of the First World War, which is the only reason we know she didn't start that one. <laughs> um, now, we're going back to the year uh, 1791. Now, I, I studied history O-level, which I don't know if you, that, that's what nowadays they call a GCSE, but we joined up writing. Um, and also I did history A-level and I studied, I was at St Andrews University, so I did study history for two years before specialising in English. And all the history I've ever done in this country, well, in Britain, I don't know if anyone else has found this, but they've always excluded two things from the syllabus, which is the English Civil War and the French Revolution, because history is written by the victors. And I think that teachers, well, you know, the education department, they don't really want us to start exploring um, kind of historical events where royalty was overturned. So we're going to 1791, which on this day was the day that Marie Antoinette, Queen of France, was imprisoned. Now, I don't know what your idea of Marie Antoinette was, but as in my 15 minutes research, I had a few pictures, so she looked very much like Theresa May. <laughs> but she lived like Kim Kardashian. <laughs> and her imprisonment started the French Revolution. Now, as we know, the, the French Revolution, a movement that started with such big promise and intention to change society, but ended with all the architects of it turning on each other, betraying each other, murdering each other, kind of like the Russian Revolution and Brexit. Um, and uh, I, I have to read my own writing in this as well, by the way, because, and it's, and it's run, the pen's run. Um, so uh, her imprisonment started the revolution. Marie Antoinette wasn't imprisoned by the revolutionaries. She was imprisoned because she ran away from the first negotiations of trying to set up a kind of uh, democratic monarchy in France. She wouldn't compromise, again, like Theresa May. I know this allegory is not going to really, it's, you're not going with that, are you? Um, but Marie Antoinette, she was very, um, in her career, sort of in, in, she was married to Louis XVI. She also kind of politically interfered. She was very anti-England, um, which is what they called the UK in those days. And which they'll be calling it again after Brexit. <laughs> Um, and she was, um, she became very unpopular. We know that the, the idea that Marie Antoinette became unpopular. The marriage of Figaro, the opera, was part of her undoing. It was part of the, the kind of campaign to make her look really bad. And both like Theresa May dancing at the Tory conference. <laughs> um, and there were rumours throughout her, her, her career um, of her kind of sexual... Um, you know, doing lots of, I forgot the word, sexual things. <laughs> What's that word? Sex. Um, I've forgotten it, you see. Um, and um, it's in those days, obviously, they couldn't, um, you know, perpetuate this myth of, of Marie Antoinette being very promiscuous through sex tapes or anything. They had to use um, miniatures, portraits of her doing sexual activities. Um, 
Now, one of the things that also doomed Marie Antoinette was the affair of the, of the diamond necklace, where she was set up to look as if she'd um, tried to defraud a jeweler so that she got this very expensive diamond necklace. But actually, somebody else had forged her signature and pretended to write letters on her behalf. And I, we all have experienced that at boarding school. I thought I had a pen friend who was a boy, but it was actually my friend Antonia um, impersonating him. Um, and a lot of people say that, you know, because Marie Antoinette was married at 15 to Louis XVI, how responsible was she for being this great spendthrift? How responsible was she for at all being responsible for the things she did she was married off? But um, at 15 years old, I think a lot of people know what they're doing. Um, just look at Jacob Rees-Mogg committing himself at 15 to the Tories. <laughs> now, there's also Marie Antoinette's very famous for the let them eat cake. And there was a kind of reimagining of Marie Antoinette. About 15 years ago, a film was made, a Hollywood film with Kirsten Dunst in it. They tried to make out that Marie Antoinette was some kind of revolutionary and that by let them eat cake. She was kind of doing a general invitation to the populace to join her at Fortnum and Mason's for tea. Uh, this game, where is it? Um, the little, she had this little pretend farm that was also seen as her really overindulging in her kind of like little bourgeois fantasies. And again, the film made out that instead of this being some kind of game while the rest of France was starving, um, her little farm was an experiment in organic farming on a sort of eco level. And that if she hadn't been in prison, she hadn't been executed, she would have kind of led France into communism. <laughs> so, um, what's my last bit? Oh, so, after her, of course, you know, it led to the French Revolution. The whole of the French monarchy was um, executed. That was the end of the monarchy. And um, so democracy won, and they got Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that was, my, uh, that was my bit about Marie Antoinette. Thank you very much. Thank you, Charlie. So the first half of the show is about this date in history and we've all selected various events and people connected to the date. The second half of the show is always about the place that the show is taking place in. So here we are in Edinburgh. You could speak for probably the whole year about the history of Edinburgh. So I decided that for this show maybe we could just talk about some of the criminals associated with the history of Edinburgh and, and crime in general. So I was just going to open up by saying about capital punishment. So when was the last person executed, which was by hanging, in Edinburgh, do you think? Maybe open this up to the audience as well. How, how recent? Uh, was it me on stage last night? Didn't, didn't oh, right. No, this is, yeah, okay. I'll say the answer then. So it was 1954 was the last person to be executed by hanging in Edinburgh. It was George Robertson. I read the case. It was pretty horrific, actually. He killed his wife and two teenage children. Not something you want to read about before going to, going to sleep at night. There are actually only three other later Scottish executions, two in Glasgow in 1958 and 1960, and the final hanging was actually in Aberdeen in 1963. But when was capital punishment actually abolished? What year? Was it 1964? Yeah, that's probably what I would have said, but it's actually later. Sorry, this is about the UK. But, yeah. <laughs> actually, 1998. So it was still on the statutes that you could have legally have been put to death for, for example, treason 
prior to 1998. Now, some people might think that if the UK leaves the EU and we're no longer part of the European Convention on Human Rights, does that mean that we could execute people again? But apparently, gone to the internet, it's not as simple as that. So we'd still have to meet our obligations under the ECHR. You say that with a certain disappointment. <laughs> no, not really. Right, anyway, so that's just a bit of background. So, witches. Do you know, do you know what's happened to witches if they were suspected of being a witch anyway? What would happen to them? Classic burning on stick? Yes, but before that... Tested? Tested for oh. moles and I thought freckles? you said custard. I was going to say custard. Uh, custard. Tested. So, yes, water would be involved, so uh, we're talking about potential drowning. So, if you accused a woman of being a witch, uh, to find out whether she was a witch or not, you'd tie them to a chair and you'd dunk them in water. So in Edinburgh, that would be in the Nor Loch, which nowadays is actually Princess Street Gardens. Is that not just your average Edinburgh Hindu? <laughs> yes, yes, in those days it probably was. Now, the, the, it doesn't seem like justice to me, because if you drowned, then it proved that you were innocent and you weren't a witch. If you floated, ah... Well, you were a witch, so you were burnt at the stake. I don't think there are any winners in that uh, scenario, were there? So, yeah. Okay. So I'll open it up to the panel. Has anyone been doing more than 15 minutes of research for this show? <laughs> when it comes to criminals and so on? Yeah, I was, I was uh, intrigued by the sort of um, hanging side of things. Um, and I came across this guy um, called George Bryce. So he was the last person to be publicly hanged. Does anybody know when that was? Uh, 1864, George Bryce was publicly hanged. But that was the last uh, public execution. So he, he slit his, his maid's throat and uh, somebody grassed him up. But there was a wee problem there because they didn't have the local hangman. Basically, they'd outsourced hanging to G4S. So they brought some bloke up from York who was pretty drunk, and he just tied a two-foot rope instead of the normal size rope. And uh, so when they stuck him on the gallows, he, kind of, he was throttled, and he kind of hung about there for, like, absolutely ages. So people kind of got bored with that because they'd done their selfies with a guy throttled on the end of a rope, uploaded them, and then it was like, well, what do we do now? So, um, so they all headed off for McDonald's. So the crowd was initially really excited about seeing this guy getting his just desserts, and then they just got bored. And, sort of, and then a, sort of, a bit of a riot broke out, because there was only, I don't know if any of you guys know the Fife Circle, <laughs> the train journey. So anyway, that was Scott Rail. So the precursor to Scott Rail, Scott Coach, they put on special coaches but they only do like one every, you can't get one after midnight. You just couldn't get a Scott coach after midnight, even during the festival. So, um, so everybody was starving. So they all kind of left this guy hanging, like for days, they went off to get chips. And people thought, when they read it in the paper, they thought, that's, that's a bit much. So they, they all got down on hanging and they decided to do, do hanging in private after that. So that's what happened to poor old George Briggs. So when you were saying just desserts, I'm thinking of custard again. I, I, there's, there's definitely a, a link here. So what I read was that there was only two foot of rope, so he didn't die quickly, as you say. And the idea was they'd have invented a thing that you would, there would be a trapdoor mechanism, so hence the last drop, if you see the, 
the, the pub name along the street here. So you'd kind of drop down into an area where you would no longer be visible. So you would get executed, but it, you wouldn't be sort of left, literally left hanging uh, in front of the, the baying mob. But I think the, the mob turned on the authorities because they say, well, this isn't what we came to see. So they started pelting the, this hangman from York who wasn't doing his job properly in the authorities and they were pelting stones. Yeah, I think they, them, put, so. they, they started yeah. throwing uh, lots of disgusting, <coughs> rotten um, vegetables at them or it's anything that they could basically get from the chill counter at Aldi. Just like being you know. a comedian, isn't it? Really? <laughs> so, uh, I was going to say, it's still not the worst street performance I've seen in Edinburgh, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to tell, isn't it, sometimes? Now, if you go into the very next room along from here, you will see the door of the prison cell at the old Carlton prison, which was where people were executed after this botched public execution. So from then onwards, they were executed in, in private, as it were, but in the cell, and the door from that cell is on this very floor in this venue, so have a look at that on the way out. Has the building gone? The, 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 in 1937, I think it was demolished, yes. Wow. Yes, the Carlton Prison. Of so. course, the public public hanging in, in Britain, that that, uh, that ended in 1864 in Scotland anyway, but public flogging continued for a long time. In fact, right the way up, people were publicly flogged right the way up to 2018, until the end of the Jeremy Kyle show. <laughs> the reason they had to hire a hangman in was because there were so few public executions by the middle of the 19th century so they thought this guy from York uh, he, said, he said he knew how to hang people so they kind of hired him in and he obviously didn't do his job properly he, he lied on his CV basically <laughs> um, <clears throat> and of course he went on to become the boss of G4S because that's what normally happens and <laughs> you cock it up yeah but usually what would happen, even though people were sentenced to death, that was usually commuted to transportation to the colonies. So you just had a very long holiday in Australia or something <laughs> like that instead. So. Okay. Anyone else on the panel want to chip in? Um, this, is, this is where I find out how much research you did before. I, I looked so. a little bit at, what's his name, Deacon Brody or whatever? Oh, yeah. yes, yes, yes. So... Uh, what most, do you mostly, know about him then? Well, mostly that in Amsterdam we're still suffering across, uh, because of him. Oh. Yes, he, well, he, he, he was, of course, very famous uh, Edinburgh's scallywag from the 18th century, I think. Yes, yes. Uh, 18th century, is that right? Uh, yes, yes, 18th century, yes. And he, he uh, fled to Amsterdam, where he later got apprehended and then brought back and executed. Uh, but yeah, we're still suffering because he started the trend of uh, Scottish scallywags coming to Amsterdam, <laughs> uh, which there are now doing in large numbers, ever larger numbers, under the hood of a stag party uh, or a hen party. We have a lot of women in, attached to chairs floating in the canals because it gets out of hand. So plan A was all these people are coming over from Scotland, so just give them drugs to try and calm them down a bit. That's yeah, not, well, not working very well. Well, one of the so. problems for me personally <coughs> is that it drove up the heroin prices. That's why I moved to <laughs> Nepal. In Nepal, it's still uh, relatively so. affordable. But, uh, so so there, there are also some interesting stories about how he uh, tricked the hangman. Uh, so there's, yes. there's yep. stories that he didn't. So he got executed. They hung him publicly, I assume, because it was the 18th century still. Uh, but later, his grave was found empty. So there are all these stories that he's he managed to survive and that he now works in Vegas as an Elvis impersonator. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's yeah. about as much as I research. So <laughs> it, was, it was alleged that he was spotted in Paris. So I don't know if he was doing, this, doing the circuit or something. <laughs> Amsterdam and Paris, but sorry. 
So I was going to say it's strange how how Scotland likes to kind of commemorate uh, criminals and murderers yeah. by by naming pubs after them. Because yeah. you've got like the the Deacon Brodie, and then you've got the the Last Drop, and I'm just waiting for Witherspoons to build their their huge pub to probably Scotland's greatest ever criminal, um, and call it the Sir Fred Goodwin. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Not the direction I expected that to go in. Very good. Yes. You know a strip club called the Birkin Hair down there. Down that street. Yeah. 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 His father was a locksmith and he took over the locksmith business, if I'm correct. And he just copied a lot of keys of houses and later burgled uh, those houses. Um, and he fled to Amsterdam specifically to actually flee to the United States. But Amsterdam is always a bit of Hotel California. You can check in, but you cannot check out. <laughs> At least if you're a scallywag that likes drugs and prostitutes. So the guns are skiffle. <laughs> it would have just been a transit, but yeah, 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 because yeah. he probably got lost or something on the way. Yeah, so by day, he was a very respected member of society. He was a town councillor. He was sort of trusted to make all these cabinets, and lots of cabinets had locks as part of the or security mechanisms. And as a result, he was able to copy the keys, and then by night, he would break into these places with the keys, and that's how he made his money. And apparently, he had a gambling habit, as is often the case, so he needed to fund that. He also had two mistresses who didn't know each other and had fathered five children, so he had quite a lot of maintenance costs, it seems. That's partly why he was doing all this stealing. So he actually recruited a gang of three thieves. John Brown, who was a thief on the run from a seven-year sentence of transportation. George Smith, a locksmith, who ran a grocer's shop in the Cowgate. And Andrew Ainsley, a shoemaker. And they did a botched armed raid on an excise office in the Canongate. And so uh, Brown sort of turned King's evidence. And although they didn't have much evidence directly that... Deacon Brodie had been doing these things he did like have in his house and workshops all these keys and pistols and a disguise so it did look rather suspicious <laughs> um, yeah so anything else about did Deacon did they go on to do that Hatton garden job in London <laughs> a couple of years I don't know how old they were but yeah, yeah possibly that, that was a bit boxed yeah. as well sounds as if they might be involved in that I read also that allegedly he's the inspiration for the Jekyll, Jekyll and Hyde story because he had the double life kind of yeah. So Robert Louis Stevenson's father actually owned furniture which Brodie had made and R.L. Stevenson wrote a play with someone <coughs> called Henley and that was entitled Deacon Brodie or The Double Life but that wasn't successful and then he later wrote the popular novel The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde published in 1886 and that obviously became a, a hit um, and there is this pub named the Deacon Brodie on the Royal Mile named after him as well. There's also two pubs that carry his name, in uh, one in New York City and one in Ottawa. And last factoid on this I had, the character of Jean Brodie in the novel The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie claims to be descended from Deacon Brodie. And his double life serves as a metaphor for her duplicity as well as her self-imposed demise. So, okay. Anyone know about Birkin hair? Not pubic hair that you said. So. Body snatchers? Yes. And then making a profit by there not naturally being enough bodies, so creating their own supply of bodies. 
for a murder. Mm. Indeed. Uh, so if you go into the graveyard just off Princess Street Gardens, I think there's a watchtower there. So they had to kind of, in the end, watch people's graves because it was such a common problem. Someone who just died was buried but then dug up again by criminals. Yeah. And were the surgeons like complicit though, if it was illegal wow. to steal the bodies? So I think the surgeon in charge of the Royal College, the general public assumes that he was complicit, but he was never actually charged with any offence. But the general consensus was, well, he must have known what was going on, but he, he claimed he was innocent. And would that be in Surgeon's Hall in Edinburgh? Is that where that kind of yeah. thing would be going on, or was that...? I believe so, mm. if that can be corroborated. But I believe the skeleton of either Burke or Hare, part of the punishment was his skeleton would be dissected and is, is kept in, in the college. In a big glass jar, I suppose, mm. yes. So I don't, I don't know why they, they kind of went from that because, you know, went from, they ran a very successful um, guest house business. Uh, yeah. In fact, they were the, the precursors to what we now have as this guest house phenomenon and their little guest house was called the Birkin Hare B&B. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I had the same thought as you were saying it. Of course, just, just changing that for a minute. Um, I mean, Edinburgh is full of absolutely wonderful um, buildings. Uh, I found out recently that 75% of all the buildings in Edinburgh are listed. That is a hell of a lot of Airbnb. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what is the smallest listed building in Edinburgh? I have no idea. It's actually uh, the, Scot the Scotty Dog. Well, little uh, Greyfriars Bobby. Greyfriars I couldn't remember his name. Bobby. Is, yeah. the, is the smallest listing, listed Greyfriars. monument oh. in, in Edinburgh. The one that everybody rubs, the, yes. rubs its nose. Yes, and, and blocks the pavement. I've got a, can't really call it a lovely little story because just, it just shows how savage people were in the olden days. There's a, a lad called Robert Henderson. Now, one evening in 1584, he was still in his early teens and he accidentally set fire to his father's house in Edinburgh after lighting a candle. In fact, there's the fire engine just going to it right now. So he lit his candle and he accidentally set fire to his father's house. And his reaction was to run away because he thought, well, I'm going to get punished. And he was. He was quickly found. He was given sentence, and there was an angry mob shouting outside the courtroom. And his punishment was to be thrown in prison, brought out again, and executed by being burned to life. <laughs> and he didn't even do it deliberately. So, uh, he was in his early teens. The, the breaking wheel was uh, also known as the execution wheel or Catherine wheel, was a simple wagon wheel and the condemned were lashed to it and beaten to death with cudgels. And the gaps between the spokes meant that the victim's bones would give way in, and break in multiple places. So that, that wasn't a particularly common punishment, but it was being used at the Mercat Cross in 1591 and was used as punishment for Robert Weir, uh, who was broken on the wheel in Edinburgh in 1603, possibly full, for the murder of John Kinaid, Lord of Warriston, who'd been complicit with Lady Warriston for the murder of her husband. Uh, she was beheaded rather than being secured to the cart. You, so, yeah. you think some of these things would be a bit of a deterrent, don't you? Yeah, you know, well, it just shows... Lash you, yeah, to a wheel people and still, break all your bones. Yeah. It's like, maybe I won't commit murder after all. But you could be transported to the colonies or even put to death for stealing a loaf of bread or something, couldn't you? So it was, I don't know. If, if you were starving, I guess you would still steal a loaf of bread. 
Andrew, you've been very quiet. Have you done any research onto Edinburgh's history? Or did uh, you run I, out of time? I, I started to. Yeah. When, when, when we first emailed for the show, uh, I, was, I was full of hope and excited. Uh, and now we're 14 days into the fringe. Uh, and I'm slowly losing my mind, to be honest. <laughs> yes. I bought these glasses, unironically, the other day. I paid £6 for them and thought, oh, they'd be a great choice. Uh, which I'm aware is not going to work on an audio podcast. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I've really, I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed uh, learning about history. Uh, I did pick up uh, Terry Deary's um, Horrible Histories on Edinburgh. Uh, and I've got to pack it, so uh, I, that's, that was going to be a source of, I thought there'd be lots of jokes in there, I thought I'd make them all, uh, and I, I've, uh, I left it at home. Okay. Uh, anything else from anyone on the panel before I close up the show? It's uh, shakes of heads all around. So please give it up for the acts you saw today. So we saw Andrew White, <laughs> David Butchanks, Fedor Ikelar, and Charmian Hughes. So I've got, uh, I've got a final on this day to share with you at the end. I couldn't decide between Wild West performer Annie Oakley and English film director and producer Alfred Hitchcock, so I'll mention both of them. Wild West performer Annie Oakley was born on this day in 1860. She was famous for her shooting ability, joined Buffalo Bill's Wild West show in 1885 and was a star attraction for 17 years. And she's quoted as saying, I ain't afraid to love a man I ain't afraid to shoot him either. <laughs> and Alfred Hitchcock, here's three quotes to end the show on. So, number one, the length of a film should be directly related to the endurance of the human bladder. <laughs> uh, number two, always make the audience suffer as much as possible. Sorry. And uh, number three, give them pleasure, the same pleasure they have when they wake up from a nightmare. <laughs> but I do hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you very much for coming along. Listen out for the podcast sometime in the autumn. It just so happens. Thank you very much. Indeed.